Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Laura Schmidt-Olabisi and Miles McNow to discuss another book in MSU Press's Transformations in Higher Education series, Innovations in Collaborative Modeling. Thanks for tuning in. Collaborative applications of a variety of modeling methodologies have multiplied in recent decades due to widespread recognition of the power of models to integrate information from multiple sources, test assumptions about policy and management choices, and forecast the future states of complex systems. However, information about these modeling efforts is often segregated by both discipline and modeling approach preventing folks from learning from one another. Innovations in collaborative modeling addresses the need for cross-disciplinary and cross-methodological communication. To enhance a shared understanding of systems problems, scientists and stakeholders need strategies for integrating information from their respective fields, dealing with issues of scale and focus, and rigorously investigating assumptions. The chapters in this edited collection first explore modeling methodologies for enhanced collaboration, then offer case studies of collaborative modeling across different complex systems. Edited by Laura Schmidt-Olabisi, Miles McNow, the late William Porter, and Jinhua Zhao, this volume will be useful for experienced and beginning modelers as well as for scientists and stakeholders who work with them. I'm excited to discuss the promises, pitfalls, and profits of collaborative modeling with two of the book's editors today. Laura Schmidt-Olabisi is an associate professor in the Department of Community Sustainability and the Environmental Science and Policy Program at Michigan State University, and Miles McNall, who is Director for Community-Engaged Research here at Michigan State University. Laura and Miles, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. I'm really excited to talk about your book, and I think that listeners will have noticed that there's a lot packed into that intro for a layman like me uh, to pick through. I wonder if we could help orient them uh, by giving us a little bit of a breakdown of what you mean when you talk about modeling and where we might encounter it sort of in the wild. Sure. In its purest form, a model is any representation of a system. So it can be a drawing on a piece of paper. It can be a simulation on a computer. It can be a map. And we all use models every day, I would argue, to forecast the consequences of our decisions, to help structure our daily lives. So building a model on a computer, as many of the examples in this book are doing, uh, is just one example of the ways that we all use modeling in our daily lives to help us make decisions and navigate reality. Are there particular problems that are better suited to approaching with modeling than others? Because models are so flexible, they really can be used in a wide range of contexts and applied to a wide range of problems. The types of modeling that we're talking about in this book is mainly complex systems modeling. And so those are types of models that you're going to use when you really have a lot of interactions between different components, a lot of feedback. So a system in which A is causing B and B is also causing A, a lot of uncertainty, you know, things that are not easily kind of determined using a a linear framework. 
so some places where like regular listeners would have like encountered models. I mean, the one that comes to mind for me is like when we talk about climate change, you think a lot about climate modeling and how different aspects of the environment interact with one another. What are some other places that modeling is really driving discussions about the nature and solution to particular problems? Well, a great example that we've all experienced uh, very recently is pandemic modeling. Different models of the COVID-19 pandemic were used to develop uh, public health strategies around controlling the pandemic. And uh, a type of modeling that I use, system dynamics modeling, is known for that kind of application. So looking at how people's behavior and public health measures can change the course of a pandemic, for example. All right. And models can be used to represent smaller scale events. Um, Just to give you an idea of the diversity of the different kinds of issues or problems that modeling can be applied to, a collaboration between social scientists and engineers in one of the chapters shows how modeling can be used to understand college drinking events and the dynamics of them. That's really interesting. Could you say more about what goes into building a model like that, that would look at a college drinking event? Well, it's interesting how that collaboration got started. It was a casual conversation between an engineer and a professor of social work, and they were observing the behavior of bees in a hive. And the social scientist happened to mention that that reminded him a little bit of college drinking events. And the engineer said, well, Actually, we have models that do a pretty good job of simulating bee colony behavior, and uh, that led directly into a plan for them to combine their skills in modeling and understanding of behavioral science to then work together to build a model. That's really fascinating, and it's emphasizing one of the things that is really at the core of the argument, you know, that the book is making as a collection to do with the cross-disciplinary focus and the sort of cross-disciplinary potentials of modeling. I wondered to that end, if each of you could tell me a little bit about how you come to using models in your work and what modeling does in your particular scholarship and what you bring, you know, to other disciplines from that perspective. One of the things that I've done for the past two decades is act as a program evaluator. So I'm a person who uses social scientific methods to help people understand whether or not different kinds of programs directed at social problems or um, health-related problems or other issues are having the intended effects. And over those two decades, what I noticed was frustration on the part of program designers and implementers around their effectiveness. And so it began to raise in my mind questions about whether traditional social problem-solving techniques were in fact effective and working and whether there wasn't something that we were missing. And within my field, there was a movement towards systems thinking and systems modeling. So understanding the problems are not isolated, They often uh, exist in close relationship with other related problems that need to be addressed collectively, and systems thinking is a way of essentially drawing a wider boundary around a particular issue or problem and understanding all of the different factors that affect it 
and cause the problem to persist. And so systems thinking and system modelings are ways into a better understanding of the dynamics of particular kinds of issues or problems we're dealing with. And, and we hope a more effective way of, of solving them. For my part, uh, I was trained in my studies as an ecologist, an environmental scientist, and I did my dissertation research in the Philippines looking at environmental problems like erosion and runoff. And what I quickly found was that understanding the realities of the decisions that farmers make on the ground in their kind of social and political context was just as important as understanding the physical factors in the soil that lead to erosion. And I found that modeling was a very useful way of bringing those two disciplines and perspectives together into one framework to try to look at potential solutions to the issue of, of erosion. And the other, the way that it spurred kind of the participatory or collaborative part for me was that as I was talking to farmers about the decisions they made, it became very clear again that incorporating their perspective and the way that they make decisions into the model was vital uh, if the solutions that we were working towards were going to have any kind of basis in reality. So I was starting to think about this when I went on to do a postdoctoral research uh, associate position at the University of Minnesota. And we were tasked with working with communities around the state who are trying to implement sustainability projects. And so we were doing some modeling with them about what the future of their communities might look like if they were to implement these projects. And again, we found that incorporating their perspectives into this work was vital. So I started looking into building models uh, as a way of communicating between different disciplines among scientific teams, but also between scientists and community partners. And I found that there is actually a, a really strong and growing body of literature on this. But we also found some gaps in it, which is what we were trying to address with this book. In that, as, we as you said in the introduction, a lot of that literature is really segregated by the type of modeling and by the discipline. And so we were trying to bring people together to kind of talk about best practices in the field with this work. Yeah, so I think Laura points to two senses of collaboration that we intend when we're talking about collaborative modeling. One is interdisciplinary. So most complex problems to be resolved require the understanding from more than one discipline and professional expertise. And then also people who are affected by the problem in different communities. And so that's the second sense, which is really highlighted in our more recent shift from talking about collaborative modeling to participatory modeling, where we're directly involving stakeholders affected by problems with local knowledge about problems in modeling it. I'm really fascinated by this idea of modeling as a way of communicating. And as, as you emphasize there, Miles, that a way of communicating, not just among different disciplines, but among stakeholders, folks who are affected by a problem, experts who are trying to help you know, understand and solve these problems. Could you say a little bit more about maybe just the mechanics of that? Like, what does it look like to think about models and modeling as a way of communicating among different kinds of groups? Well, for me, it goes back to a point I was trying to make at the beginning that all of us have models in our heads of the way the world works, right? And we use those models to navigate the world. 
And the other point to make is that all of those models are different, right? My model of the way the world works is different from yours, is different from Miles's, is different from you know any other person who might come into trying to solve a problem with us. So building a model together is a way of getting those assumptions and those connections that we have in our heads kind of out in the open and discussing and navigating them and seeing where they're similar and where they differ and where you know I might not have a piece of the puzzle that you do that we need to kind of understand the whole system and the way it functions. So it's really a way of excavating those mental models and turning them into something that we all can discuss and manipulate and work with as a proxy for the real world system that we're all in, which is extremely complex and and which we all have only a piece of the puzzle about. I wonder, could you say a little bit about how that process of excavation looks like? So say, you know, just for instance, you're working on a particular problem. How do you go about addressing a community or engaging other scholars in that kind of that kind of archaeological modeling where you're where you're thinking about what what do we already assume what do we know what do we hope to see together uh, what does that work look like yeah well there are several examples in the book and it can look like uh, different things one example in a chapter that that I worked on was looking at causes of deforestation in Zambia And so what we did is we gathered groups of different stakeholders. So like farmers, uh, development workers, you know, people who had some kind of knowledge or interest about this problem. And we had them construct a diagram on paper together about how the system operated. So in, in my field, we would call that a causal loop diagram, but it can have a number of different names or specific forms. But the point is that people take what's in their head and they put it on the paper, they draw the connections, they explain them, you know, why why is this causing that, for example, and then we can turn that into a a simulation model with numbers that can help us look at future states of the system and how we can better manage it. So I would add to that just more generally, and I I think Laura provided a wonderful example, but any modeling project that's participatory in nature and I, I would I would say uh, more broadly for community engaged research in general, you know, you start out by by figuring out uh, within any community that's affected by a problem. First of all, who's interested in talking to you if you're a researcher or a scientist? Who's already working on that problem in the community? Who's interested in partnering with you and having an initial conversation about uh, whether or not you would be interested in working together on it and what that would look like. So there's there's a, a very important part of this that involves building a relationship, establishing trust, coming to some agreement about how the work is going to proceed, and who's going to own the knowledge and the information uh, that comes out of that. And so that's a really critical part that has to precede the modeling work. And it's something that we feature heavily uh, in our participatory modeling field school that we run every summer. It really does raise the kind of ethics question when you when you suggest who's going to own whatever comes out of this as a node of discussion. I wonder what your takes are on how does one engage communities uh, and then publish research about them without violating their trust or you know, stepping on professional ethics in some way or other? I think one way of handling that is, is to simply have an agreement. So 
if you come to a community as an academic and, and you want to work with them around assisting that community in, in managing or resolving some kind of issue or problem that they're facing, you have to be open with them around what you as an academic need to get out of it and also find out what they need to get out of it, what the community needs to get out of it or the effort to be worth their while. And, you know, be open and honest and have a clear understanding and agreement at the beginning. If we're academics, we're going to have to publish some papers off of this. Our career depends on it. Our continued employment at whatever university we work at depends on it. And most community members will, will understand that and accept that as part of the agreement they're making with their university partner. But there also have to be tangible benefits for communities and community members coming out of it and some agreement around what will happen with the information generated by the project, uh, who gets to have access to it. Very often, community members can be uh, involved uh, with academics faculty in co-creating publications or products that are designed for community consumption. But that all needs to be uh, worked out ahead of time in any community-engaged research project, whether it's a participatory modeling or, or uses some other method or technique. That was very well said. I would just second everything that, that Miles just, just talked about. And just to, to mention that this is a very hotly discussed topic in academia right now. There has been a lot of pushback, and, and rightly so, on you know so-called helicopter science in which scientists or academics kind of parachute into communities, get some data, and, and then leave. And, and it benefits their careers, but doesn't really benefit the people they're working with. And there are ongoing discussions about how to do better collaboration. And I think Miles just named some specific things that can help with that. You know, I wonder in light of that, thinking about really how much easier it would be to just go in and extract whatever data you need and take it back to the ivory tower to then, you know, convert it into the currency of publications and things. How much you think of your work as collaborative or participatory modelers as a kind of pedagogical endeavor, how much of what you do is teaching the community to understand the work that you're doing, you know, the kinds of um, things that that you need from them and the kinds of things that you can offer them and really helping them come to terms with the sort of way that you're approaching problems in order to work together toward a solution. I, I would definitely say it's a learning experience, but it is a learning experience on both sides. Community members are experts on their own environment, on their experience of a particular problem, and often their expertise in certain aspects of it. And you absolutely cannot do any decent modeling without the benefit of that information and that wisdom and that experience. So there is learning on both sides. It's not one-way pedagogy. Uh, we, the experts, um, have all of this scientific knowledge, and we're going to come into your community and explain how the particular dynamics of this problem that you're dealing with operates. No, it always requires joining together those two different sources of knowledge. And that's what you see represented in the models that Laura was talking about. It's the combination of those knowledge sources in a model that provides a really rich understanding of how 
complex systems and complex problems operate. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Laura schmidt Olabisi and Miles McNall, editors of Innovations in Collaborative Modeling. I wonder how that translates into the solutions that are offered by folks who do modeling. You know, these processes result in particular kinds of solutions or suggestions, recommendations, et cetera. Here I'm thinking about climate modeling because I feel like whenever you dig into someone discussing climate change online, you, you find that a lo lot of the skeptics will want to dig into, you know, like, well, here's, here's what the climate models look like, and here's why that's confusing, or what they left out, or all of those kinds of things. And, you know, to, a, again, a layperson like me, that just gets really bamboozling very quickly to try to understand not only, you know, whatever the diagnosis of the problem is, the recommended solution, but also the complex and, you know, really specialized way that those kinds of solutions or diagnoses come about. Do you feel as participatory or collaborative modelers that, that you have any responsibility or, or is it part of your job to explain how these systems work or how these modeling techniques work kind of to a broader public? Yeah, I mean, that is an important point. So I, I will say that one of the ways that we hopefully can get broader uptake of solutions that are backed by high quality models is by involving the people who are going to make those decisions in the modeling process. And there are a couple of examples of that in the book, Moira Zellner's chapter on using uh, participatory agent-based modeling for environmental planning, I think is a really good example of that, a really, really fascinating example. And then we have some authors uh, from France who talk about using role-playing games to look at designing uh, wildlife conservation activities. So the more that we can involve people in the process of building these models, the more they will trust the models and, and what comes out of them is, is the hope there. When you're talking about kind of broader public trust in models, I think that that can, that can also translate, right? Because if people see that there is a diversity of folks involved in the modeling process and different people's voices were heard, maybe that does, and that scientists are engaging in the learning process as much as, as other folks, like Miles said, then maybe that does increase trust. And one of the things that, that I'd like to point to is that the models don't necessarily offer obvious solutions. Um, so we're talking about simulation models. And, you know, you can tweak the value of a particular variable and end up with the model demonstrating a different type of behavior of the system over time than if the variable has a different value. What it gives you instead of an obvious solution sometimes is a notion of what the different policy options are, different choices you can make in terms of actions and what the consequences of those will be over time. And very often, because we're talking about nonlinear linear dynamics and, and counterintuitive behavior of systems, unexpected results. So people might think, if I have this input, then I'm going to get this outcome, because we're often guilty of linear thinking. We realize when we actually run a, a simulation or a scenario, that's not always what happens. So we understand options by using these models, and we also understand trade-offs. So you don't always get what you want exclusively. 
there might be a negative consequence that you didn't anticipate. So, so rather than building a model and saying, well, here's an obvious solution for you, it gets people the opportunity to explore options and understand the consequences and the trade-offs and make some decisions. We're trying to put models in the hands of people who are in a position to be able to make decisions, to make the kinds of transformations that are needed to resolve or manage a particular problem. In everything that, that you're saying, I keep coming back to something that's mentioned in the introduction about the primacy or importance of process here, that that all of this is a is a method for thinking together, working together, exploring solutions together, not necessarily delivering um, you know, the final edict on on whatever particular problem it might be. I wonder, since we've been talking a little bit abstractly about modeling and, and how this works and what it's been used for, if we could talk a little more specifically about the book. And the first question that I that I thought was pertinent here on the back of this, thinking about process is the process whereby the book came to be. Is it true that it was begun in a conference setting uh, around 2015 of the same name here at Michigan State? That's correct. So. To give you a little background on that conference, so I work in university outreach and engagement, and my responsibility is to support faculty in doing community-engaged research. And I had, for the reasons I talked about earlier, become really interested in systems thinking and systems modeling. And then my former boss, the former associate provost of university outreach and engagement, Hiram Fitzgerald, had done a lot of uh, work on modeling the dynamics of psychological systems. He's a psychologist, a developmental psychologist. And he had a chance meeting with William Porter, the late William Porter, who was one of our co-editors, who has used modeling to understand the dynamics of uh, white-tailed deer populations in the Midwest. So in any event, they had a chance meeting, found out that they had a, a mutual interest in systems thinking and system modeling. So we had a meeting to figure out, well, we're, we have this common interest. What can we do together? And so we put together a conference, which sort of brought together anybody who's modeling complex systems and problems across all of these various disciplines, anybody who's using modeling techniques. Anybody who's doing a collaborative modeling, either in the sense of, of doing interdisciplinary modeling or doing modeling with communities, and had, I thought, a very successful conference where there was a lot of interesting sharing across disciplines. Some new research partnerships actually across disciplines actually formed out of that conference. And then after the conference was over, we essentially invited the participants who had presented at the conference to publish their work in an edited volume. And several of them took us up on the offer. And that's how the book came about. I wonder, did your ideas about collaborative modeling develop in the wake of the conference or during the conference uh, that, that helped shape the volume in some way? Well, speaking for myself, yes, it was definitely an education because I had sort of this abstract interest in systems theory and modeling. But what was so fascinating about the conference is to see all of the different applications across different fields, across different issues. So 
yes, my thinking and understanding of, of the field evolved tremendously as a result of the conference. Yeah, I, I agree. Mine as well. And and to add to that, I mean, this was one of the one of the impetus for the book was that we felt that there wasn't a publication or a book that really brought together all of those insights across these different modeling techniques and different disciplines. And so we wanted to share some of those insights that arose for both of us during that conference. I wonder if, you know, thinking about those insights, the things that you're trying to share. We've talked a lot in reference to chapters in the book, but I wonder if if each of you might highlight one that you found particularly compelling or, you know, a, a really good example of the kinds of innovations that the book is offering. Sure. Well, one example. Uh, so out of that conference was the first time that I met uh, Moira Zellner, who is a participatory agent-based modeler now at Northeastern University. And she just does some really phenomenal work around bringing people together to understand the complex dynamics of decision-making in an urban context. So she's done some work on planning for, you know, stormwater runoff, for example. And I just learned so much from her in terms of not only how she organized the process of modeling, but how she kind of documents it and looks at how people are interacting with the model and how they're learning along the way and how that helps her change the process to better suit the needs of the decision maker she works with. So I, for me, that was really fascinating. And that's a really interesting chapter in the book. And I'll refer back to the chapter I talked about earlier about this chance collaboration between engineers and social scientists to understand college drinking events. Part of the reason that that is so fascinating to me is, first of all, I just love the fact that, you know, you have people from really disparate disciplines who have never had a history of working together, realizing that they each had something to contribute to understanding a problem that this particular campus was having at the time. But the other thing that really fascinates me about the, about the story of that work was that when they went to publish that work, because they used system dynamics modeling, and system dynamics modeling is a technique that many engineers understand, well, and there's a long track record of publishing on using this technique in that field, they had no problem getting their model published in an engineering journal. Completely different situation in trying to get it published in a, a journal in the social work field or, or in journals having to do with alcohol and drug addiction, because that particular method is not well understood or accepted in the social sciences. So it really demonstrates that many, many fields are unfamiliar, these modeling techniques, even though they have real power to help us understand particular problems in a completely different way using a completely different technique. Yeah, that is fascinating. And both of those examples give such a good picture of how really broad and sweeping and, and diverse, you know, the groups of people we're talking about, the kinds of approaches that we're dealing with. Who would have ever thought to unite the investigation of honeybees with the investigation of college drinking? It's really incredible. I wanted to follow up on, you know, the book is Innovations in Collaborative Modeling, and, and you've been using the language of participatory modeling. I know that one of the works on the horizon for you all is a kind of participatory modeling field school. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what the difference is between 
uh, what you were calling collaborative and what you're now thinking of as participatory modeling? Well, as I said before, when we named our, our first conference, Innovations in Collaborative Modeling, we understood collaboration in two senses. There was the interdisciplinary component and there was the community-engaged component. So participatory really focuses on, on the second of these things. It focuses on bringing stakeholders into the modeling process. And that's where the focus of our, our efforts in recent years have been. So we now have, um, in the summer, a field school that we run that lasts nearly a full week where we start out by focusing on how you engage with communities, how you select appropriate modeling techniques, how you start the conversation about what systems thinking and system modeling is, and then take the participants in the field school into deep dive into learning some of the different modeling techniques that are commonly used in participatory modeling. One of the things that I'm most excited about this field school, well, there are a couple of things, actually. One is that in its design and conceptualization, we're working closely with community-based partners in Detroit. So the school is going to be beneficial, hopefully, for both modelers who want to learn how to engage with community and community partners in Detroit who want to use modeling to solve their problems. And so really co-designing that. Uh, and that's that's really unique, I think. I don't know of another field school that does that, frankly. And then the second thing is that it, it is located in a place like Detroit, which is really a phenomenal kind of laboratory, if you will, for social innovation. And you know, there's just so many things going on in the city. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, as Miles said, we've done it a couple times before. We've learned from the experience and, and next year is hopefully going to be even, even better. It sounds really great. I spoke to uh, John Hardig on the show earlier in this season, who, whose book, uh, Detroit Waterfront Porch, deals with the river walk along the Detroit River. Um, that was a long and, and complicated process of collaboration. And he, he talked about Detroit in the very same way that it's at this moment in its life where it's a sort of hotbed for trying innovative approaches to things and new techniques and ideas, that there's a lot of space there now for that kind of collaboration and innovation. So that makes the school sound all the much more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. At the top, I mentioned that the book is a part of the Transformations in Higher Ed series. Um, other books in that series include work on service learning, community engagement abroad, bridging scholarship and activism. I know we've just been talking about the participatory modeling field school, but I wonder if each of you would share a little bit of the kind of work that you've been up to you know, in recent years and whether we'll be seeing some of that coming through the, the Transformations series in the years ahead. So as I said earlier, and actually my title is um, now Director for Community-Engaged Research, my responsibility broadly is to support all forms of faculty community-engaged research. Well, not just faculty, but uh, students as well. I am not a participatory modeler, but I am an enthusiastic cheerleader of all participatory research techniques, and I love this one in particular. Because as I said earlier, I think, I think the systems thinking and modeling approach has great potential for a more effective social problem solving, social and environmental problem solving, I should say. 
So Laura and I are going to continue working with our faculty colleagues and community partners in running the participatory modeling field school and continuing to try to improve on it and and make it community engaged. That will be my work in this, my continuing work in this space. I should mention also that Miles and I are working together along with several other Michigan State faculty and staff and uh, community collaborators on a project in Flint, Michigan, founded by the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, in which we're using participatory modeling to identify potential ways to shift the food system towards more uh, equitable, sustainable, and healthful outcomes. So that's an example of, you know, an ongoing community-engaged modeling project. And I think we'll probably have a book to write about it afterwards. It's been a learning experience for sure. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that will be part of a future volume. We'll see. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. I know that there's a lot of really important work going on around food systems. And so I'm sure that that would be a thrilling story to hear. You know, it has been such an education for me to chat with the two of you and to spend some time with your book. I've learned so much just from this small conversation, and and I'm really eager to share it with folks and to encourage them to learn more in your book. So I just want to say before we go, thank you both so much for taking the time to sit with a layman like me and talk through some of this today. Thank you, Kurt. This was great. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Innovations in Collaborative Modeling is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.